You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. The White House going to honor those subpoenas uh, issued this morning? I didn't know there's any issues yet. Yes, we've got them for uh, April 4th and uh, June 20th and June 23rd. Yeah. Well, they... what I did is I said to Haig and to St. Clair, now, I will reduce my demands to 18, I believe I said, of these tape recordings. And I'll give you the exact ones I want and forget about the others. And if you don't do that, I must then insist on the subpoena being served and I must disclose the naming of Nixon as an unindicted co-conspirator because it's important to my sustaining my position on the subpoena. I said, that sounds like blackmail. And I so recall he said something like, well, there's blackmail and there's blackmail. How much time will you give us? And I said, well, I'll give you two or three days, whatever you need to make the decision. It was decided that the I would be notified on Tuesday as to what the decision was. On Monday afternoon, I learned that Mr. Nixon spent some uh, six hours doing nothing but listening to the 18 tapes. On Monday, not waiting until Tuesday, on Monday, St. Clair called me and said that the president would not agree to it. So, when I was advised, I said, well, meet me in court. It says equal justice under law, so we ought to win, Phil. United States Committee on the Judiciary House of Representatives, Washington, D.C., June 28, 1974. By hand, Mr. Leon Jaworski, Special Prosecutor, Watergate Special Prosecution Force, U.S. Department of Justice. Dear Mr. Jaworski, in the course of our evidentiary presentations in executive session, Mr. James St. Clair, Special Counsel to the President, has challenged whether the evidence before the June 5th Grand Jury of the District of Columbia was sufficient to warrant their action in naming the president as a non-indicted co-conspirator. In view of this, I would like to request that Mr. John Doerr, special counsel, have the opportunity to examine any memorandum that you have prepared which summarizes all the evidence pertaining to President Nixon's conduct as it relates to the Watergate cover-up conspiracy. I suggest it would be most convenient if Mr. Doerr could come to your office and review the memorandum. If possible, I would like to have him to have that opportunity this weekend, as we will be hearing some witnesses next week and the week following, and this matter is undoubtedly likely to arise. Thank you for your cooperation. Sincerely, Peter W. Rodino, Jr., Chairman. Congress of the United States, Committee of the, on the Judiciary, June 28, 1974, by hand, Mr. Leon Jaworski, Special Prosecutor, Watergate Special Prosecution Force, U.S. Department of Justice. Dear Mr. Jaworski, I enclose herewith a letter from Chairman Rodino requesting permission for me to examine any factual memorandum prepared by your staff summarizing the basis 
for naming the president as a non-indicted co-conspirator by the June 5th grand jury. Chairman Rodino believes that an examination of this material is necessary to the committee's inquiry. House Resolution 803, adopted February 6, 1974, authorized and directed the Committee on the Judiciary to investigate fully whether sufficient grounds exist for the House of Representatives to exercise its constitutional power to impeach the President of the United States. The resolution also grants the Committee subpoena and other appropriate investigative powers. Chairman Rodino believes that the Committee has the right and responsibility to make an examination of the memoranda sought by his letter and to use the subpoena power, if necessary, in this regard. We would hope and expect, however, that it will not be necessary to use such power, and that, consistent with your responsibilities and ours, we can obtain this relevant information in a cooperative fashion. Sincerely, John Doerr, Special Counsel. The Honorable Peter W. Rodino, Jr., Chairman, Committee on the Judiciary, House of Representatives, Washington, D.C., Dear Chairman, Mr. Chairman, I received your letter and that of Mr. Doerr requesting access for Mr. Doerr to have to any memorandum which this office has prepared as a summary of evidence pertaining to President Nixon's conduct in the Watergate matter. And as much as your exercise of subpoena power would be appropriate in this regard, we will make available to Mr. Doerr at his convenience and for his examination a summary memorandum prepared here in connection with our duty under the special prosecutor's mandate to investigate allegations involving the president. I suggest that Mr. Doerr telephone Mr. Ruth here at the office to make the necessary arrangements. Sincerely, Leon Jaworski, Special Prosecutor. John Doerr came on July 1st, 1974. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace, and what you just heard are the bookends of two dramatic situations that began to happen in May uh, of, of 1974. Uh, May 5th, a meeting between uh, Leon Jaworski and Alexander Haig in which uh, Haig, uh, Jaworski asked Haig for reduction, in the, uh, you know, that he would give a reduction of the tapes they wanted for 18 particular tapes. And if they did not get that demand, then uh, they would name, they would announce to the public that Nixon was an unindicted co-conspirator. This was something that they had hidden from the president and his defense team up to that point, and from the public. It was not public knowledge. Uh, the bookend on the other end is on June the 28th. Uh, it is a, this exchange of letters between Peter Rodino and uh, Leon Jaworski in which Rodino is trying to get his hands on an inside the prosecution memo that was about 28 pages or so long that would would go through how they believe President Nixon was involved specifically and why he was named an unindicted co-conspirator. It's, you know, a dramatic set of circumstances. What's interesting about the prosecutors is they wrote books later. And I'm going to show you an excerpt from Stonewall. This is Richard Benvenisti's book in which they'll describe to you what was going on. Prosecutor's description of their secret meetings with House Judiciary staff, a narrative written here by Jeff Shepard. The House Judiciary Committee turned out to be ill-equipped to develop a criminal case against President Nixon, since they couldn't convene a grand jury of their own. They secretly turned to the Special Prosecution Force for help, which forwarded evidence gathered through its own grand jury. 
The difficulty is that none of that evidence was ever tested in a court of law under the due process requirements guaranteed by our Bill of Rights. A public trial where the government must first present its case through a testimony by witnesses who are under oath and subject to cross-examination. Quote, In May, the Watergate Task Force began to have occasional substantive contacts with the impeachment staff. Everyone in the office was extremely sensitive about these meetings, lest they result in charges of partisan collusion against the president. The developing White House political attack on the Judiciary Committee intensified our concern, but the committee was, it seemed to us, certainly entitled to whatever evidence we had gathered concerning the president's role in Watergate that was not required to be kept confidential by the rules of grand jury secrecy. The contacts began with a meeting of our offices with Lead Judiciary Committee Counsel Jenner and Dorr, and continued primarily with two exceptionally able Dorr aides who had been assigned principal responsibility in the Watergate cover-up area. In mid-June, Deputy Prosecutor Hank Ruth suggested to Frampton that it would be a good idea to have a hand in a hand a comprehensive, up-to-date prosecutor memorandum laying out all the evidence against the president. The document should integrate the previous prosecutive report prepared in January with the evidence provided by the president's newly published transcripts. By the 28th of June, Frampton had completed a concise 64-page prosecutive summary. It demonstrated, among other things, that the president's participation in a criminal conspiracy was proved by much more than just the payment of hush money on March 21st. The issue that almost exclusively had occupied the Judiciary Committee and commentators in debate over Nixon's culpability. The memorandum considered each phase of the conspiracy charge in the cover-up indictment and cited the most important evidence available to show the president's participation in similar activities. Specific statutes under which the president might be charged were listed. In short, the document was the summation of the evidence a good prosecutor would give the House Judiciary Committee in support of the argument that President Nixon should be impeached and tried in the Senate for violation of a number of federal criminal statutes. Within a few days, John Doerr became aware of the existence of this memorandum. Doerr demanded the document and told the special prosecutor and his deputy that he would recommend to the full Judiciary Committee that it be subpoenaed if necessary. Doerr was told... In response, that we believed it would be unwise to have a copy of this document go to the committee physically, as it was an internal prosecution document. Since it was obviously relevant to the impeachment inquiry, however, Doerr would be permitted to examine it in our offices if he agreed to withdraw the threat on a subpoena. Several late evenings that week, Doerr poured over the memorandum in Ruth's office, taking copious notes. Ben Venisti, Richard and George Frampton, Stonewall, The Real Story of the Watergate Prosecution, Simon & Schuster, 1977, pages 285 through 287. Note that by avoiding any subpoena, prosecutors and the committee staff were able to transfer this information in secret without any knowledge or involvement of lawyers for President Nixon. Now, I hope that you have paid attention to dates in this uh, run there. They started talking to uh, John Doerr and uh, the other gentleman, that Jenner, Mr. Jenner, who was the Republican uh, lead guy for the Judiciary Committee in May, it says. But if you've been listening to our show, you know that John Doerr had actually been going over and having dinner with Hank Ruth at his house over a table. And at times had had a babysitter from Mr. Ruth's staff babysit his son, 
who, by the way, would, was known to say to the son, hey, you need to have your dad uh, subpoena such and such a tape, the March 21st tape. But there's no telling how much of that information had gone that way. The reason I want to point these dates out is that June 28th, this memo that went through all the, uh, the prosecutorial uh, material that included the president was put together by Mr. Frampton, who was Mr. Ruth's assistant, who Mr. Ruth has insisted uh, put this, this memorandum together. And I like how they say that John Doerr just became aware of it. Well, you know, you can't prove it, but here's a guy who's been eating dinner at, wrote John, at, at Henry Ruth's house for months, probably, and, uh, and, and they've been talking and they've been sending information through babysitters. Uh, and here, Mr. Doerr's got to admit, he can't figure out how to uh, couch this material for his committee. So Henry Ruth decides to go have one of his aides put it together for him, and then they're going to hand it to him. But they do it under the guise of, uh, you know, if you don't give it to us, it's a subpoena, so there's this little trail that, that looks nice. But the truth is, you can't prove it, but it certainly looks like it was designed to get grand jury testimony uh, and grand jury evidence that has never been in front of a defense attorney, never been cross-examined, no witness has been asked a question other than from the grand jury, which is totally controlled by the prosecutor, from them to the House Judiciary Committee in a way in which the president and his defense attorneys never see it. How did you convince Mr. Jaworski to name President Nixon as a, as a co-conspirator? How did you do that? Because he was reluctant to do it. He was reluctant to do it, and he was not going to get too out in front uh, of uh, what was publicly available. Remember, we kept secret what was on those tapes. And so no one knew the substance of what we had heard about the president's involvement in the cover-up conspiracy until the appropriate time when those tapes were made public. And so he was totally, uh, totally dug in on the issue of whether Nixon would be named in the indictment as an unindicted co-conspirator. But I said uh, to him, look, you know, at some point we're going to have to say who the co-conspirators are. We kind of have to issue a bill of particulars that identifies them. And then it's going to be you, Leon Jaworski, who has to identify Richard Nixon as a co-conspirator. And you're going to be out there on your own, and the White House is going to say that you had bad motives for doing that, and you uh, have overstepped your bounds and... Uh, in the alternative, if you present the matter to the grand jury as though you were issuing an indictment that the grand jury would vote on in which the co-conspirators were named in the body of the indictment, as often happens, um, then uh, you'll have an extra layer of insulation. And uh, eventually... Uh, Leon thought that that would be a good compromise so that we did not name the unindicted co-conspirators in the body of the public indictment, 
but we put to a vote all of those whom the grand jury uh, would uh, authorize to be later named as unindicted co-conspirators. And and were they public? Were they publicly named, or or did this leak out before they were publicly named? I don't, um, because this got out to the public. Eventually, they were publicly named, but at the time um, that uh, uh, Nixon sought uh, to quash the second subpoena on the grounds that we would not be able to use the tapes as evidence in trial because they would be hearsay, uh, we identified to him the fact that Nixon had been authorized by the grand jury who had voted on the question uh, to be named as an unindicted co-conspirator, and therefore this would be an exception to the hearsay rule because the statements of each conspirator would be admissible against any other. Uh, At that point, uh, we at least identified that fact uh, to the White House. Later on, the full list was disclosed publicly. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, if you've been listening to our show, and if you just listened to Mr. Benvenisti talk, there's a word that you hear a lot when it comes to the prosecutors. Secret. Secret, secret, secret. They move this. They, they they name him as an unindicted co-conspirator. They go meet with Al Haig. They keep it secret. They don't tell him. They secretly put a, a, a file together on the president and, and and label out everything that they need to show him as to why he was indicted, you know, or listed as an unindicted co-conspirator. And in secret, they move it over to the House Judiciary Committee. Secret, secret, secret. Let me tell you a secret. They also do when they leave office. They take their papers and documents with them so that no one can go through them. And that's why you're just hearing this in 2013, 17, and 19, because secret, 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 they kept hiding material from the public. Now, they want you to be able to see everything Richard Nixon ever said or did, especially anything that might make him look bad. But, you know, when it comes to whatever their little shenanigans were, oh, no, that's not open to the public. That's sealed. And the the House Judiciary Committee a lot of their material and their urban committee stuff was sealed. Now, I want you to, again, pay attention to dates. A lot of what we discussed happened in May, but a lot of what we're discussing here happened in June. What's going on in June? In our last episode, One Final Triumph, we talked about Richard Nixon in the Middle East negotiating peace uh, with Syria and Israel and Jordan in Saudi Arabia in Egypt. He comes back for about five, six days, and then he's in the Soviet Union at, at a uh, uh, summit meeting there, getting a test ban nuclear treaty signed, getting an economic treaty signed, and that treaty, where, where Brezhnev is negotiating with him, uh, gets on shaky ground because Brezhnev can sense, because he knows what's going on in the United States, that, that Richard Nixon uh is, is, his power is waning. So I just want you to remember that because, you know, a few years down the road, Tip O'Neill, who was the Speaker of the House then, who, by the way, was involved in this, but I don't know to, to what extent he was overly in charge, wouldn't allow Democrats to talk while Ronald Reagan was negotiating overseas. This is shameful that they were undermining this president legally while he's overseas trying to bring peace to the world, but that's a whole nother discussion. 
Again, I go back to secret, secret, secret. These prosecutors are manipulating John Doerr in the House because understand something else that you will hear if you've been listening to our show, that everybody involved on the House Judiciary Committee side, on the staff side, has said, other than interviewing witnesses and asking questions, all they did was collate information given to them. They did not investigate. So all of the evidence they had against President Nixon to decide about impeachment, because as they point out, impeachment is not a criminal act. It's a decision about whether he can stay in office. doesn't have the same threshold. But every bit of it they got from the special prosecutor's office. And President Nixon's, one of his two main lawyers, Fred Bazart, has a heart attack in the middle of all of this. And you'll see where President Nixon was when that happened. And the next day, Bazart has his heart attack. I mean, this is... I didn't know that Bazart had a heart attack. No individual in Bazart's family lived past the age of 50. He was 52. He was working around the clock on Nixon's defense. He told me when he woke up and knew he was having a heart attack, he seriously considered not saying anything because he wasn't sure that it was worth it. And ultimately, he wakes up his wife, She's doing her hair, and he says, you know, you don't have to do your hair. She drives him to the hospital. He says, you don't have to stop at 3 a.m. for the red lights. He walks into the hospital under his own power. Uh, They save him, but he died uh, four years later uh, after Watergate was over. Who replaced him as the lead preparatory man? St. Clair is the face and the... Nobody. Nobody. There's There's a famous cable from Egypt, from Al Haig, that says... Shepard is now Bazart. All rights of Bazart are now Shepard's. Do nothing without Shepard's permission. And I had to, after letting Fred have two days of recovery, sneak into the hospital to get his, to brief him, to get his advice. What day is that? Got to be August. It's close no, no, to no. the end. No, no, no. August is the end. Got to be July. No, yes, so- close to the end. June. It's it's the end. So tell uh, me, tell me uh, back uh, to the White House. The, one other, the one other quickie. Right. When I sneak in, Bazaar says, don't check in. They won't let you come see me. You know, come to the room. I go to the room. We do what we need to do. He's, he's very weak. I mean, he can't do much. And the next day, uh, <laughs> on the phone with him, he says, you were seen. And what he implied was his friends from the Pentagon or from the agency were guarding his room to be sure nothing happened to him while he was in that hospital. Uh, And they saw me go in and do, but I was, you know, I was on his side. Now I can hear people saying, well, you know, in the end of the day, Richard Nixon was guilty. The tape show he was guilty. None of this matters other than making sure that the guilty are punished, the innocent go free. And that's an interesting argument. And all I can say is you never know because the defense never really had an opportunity to question or do anything because, as we've discussed, Judge Sirico stacking the deck, uh, controlling the courtroom there. The prosecutors having secret meetings with the judge to ensure things go the way they want it to go. Again, putting all the evidence together in a form, a memo that goes through it all to make sure the House Judiciary Committee has it and they're not doing any research. And so you say that argument, well, at the end of the day, Nixon was guilty. But I want to point something out to you, or I want you to pay attention to something, and that is that there was one case involving Watergate. It, it involved John Mitchell 
and Maury Stans, who was uh, one of the biggest uh, uh, fun, money raisers, fundraisers for the Nixon campaign, they were charged in a case that ended up in New York, out of Judge Sirica's realm of influence. And it's interesting what happened there. I'm disappointed in the verdict, and there's nothing else I really can say. Are you satisfied with the government's case as you presented it and your fellow prosecutors, sir? Absolutely. When this indictment came down a year ago, I said I had great faith in God and in American justice. And uh, the verdict today, uh, I think, uh, proves that my confidence was right. This has been a long, wearing time to live for a year uh, with this hanging over me. It all was in the hands. It was decided by 12 good American people, part of the cross-section of all of America. And that is why I think we can all be proud of the way it works, that people have good sense, good reason. They apply it in the right circumstances, and that's why I love America so much, because there's so many Americans like that in it. I do agree with the uh, comment that I understand was made by the government prosecutor who indicated that uh, the jury obviously uh, believed uh, the witnesses in support of Mr. Stans and Mr. Mitchell, including both of them personally, and the prosecutor's uh, comment that uh, the government's witnesses, including John Dean, uh, were not believed. Quite obviously, uh, Mr. Dean's personal credibility as a witness is severely eroded. Now, I want to read one more thing. As you just heard former, former President, at the time current Vice President Ford, talking about John Dean, his his the, the, the people who came back from that acquittal of John Mitchell and Maury Stans, the jury, said that John Dean was not believable, that they just didn't believe anything he said. So here's what prosecutors did to fix that problem when they rolled around for the trials in uh, Washington, D.C. Quote, moral balancing aside, the real politic of the situation was that Dean would not be an effective witness at trial if he got a free ride. His credibility would be substantially diminished by his making a deal with the prosecutors to implicate others only if the prosecutors completely forgave his own deep involvement. The evident effect of Dean's prison sentence later on the jurors at the Watergate cover-up trial confirmed our tactical judgment. As a man who was already serving a long jail term for doing what he testified he had been instructed to do by Haldeman and Ehrlichman, Dean made a measurably greater impression than if he had never been charged or punished for his acts. Richard Benvenisti, George Frampton, Stonewall, The Real Story of the Watergate Prosecution, Simon & Schuster, 1977. Yeah, he made an impact, and the only reason they knew that they needed to do that was because they had already tried a case in New York, and they lost. And they lost because of the lack of credibility there. And not only is that a factor, Archibald Cox the great vaulted uh, Harvard professor goes in and meets with 
the 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 appeals judge who all these appeals from Sarika are going to come on because he knows what a weak judge Sarika is and how he's the most overturned judge in the DC system. So he goes to the chief judge, Judge Bazelon, and makes a deal so that it's always all the appeals get heard in bank, which in bank, which means that all together, all the judges on the DC court, so that the Democratic majority always sees and hears the appeals and votes to sustain them. The fix was in from start to finish, and they had one target, and his name was Richard Nixon. When we come back, we're going to look at executive privilege. We're going to hear from Phil Lacavara, who who was the prosecutor's attorney at an event that he was at where he talks about the case. And we're going to set up the stage for the United States versus Richard Nixon. This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone can embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. everyone. I'm Noah Zerbe. I'm a professor of political science at Humboldt State University. In this video series, I try to explain the theories and concepts behind current events all in two minutes or less. The idea of executive privilege is that the president and other executive branch officials can withhold certain confidential communications, information, documents, and so on from judicial and legislative inquiry. While the doctrine is not found anywhere in the Constitution, the courts have upheld that the separation of powers doctrine that divides political power in the United States across the three branches of government implies the existence of executive privilege. The scope of executive privilege has been contested, particularly as the Congress frequently maintains that broad assertions of executive privilege undermine its ability to conduct its oversight responsibilities. The courts have rarely dealt with the question of executive privilege head-on. The most important case was United States v. Nixon in 1974, which arose from a congressional investigation into the Watergate scandal. 
In its decision in that case, the Supreme Court rejected President Nixon's sweeping assertion that all presidential records are protected. Instead, it ruled that the president has a qualified privilege, which, once asserted, creates a presumption of privilege that requires Congress make sufficient showing that presidential material is essential to the justice of the case. That decision led to ongoing battles between Congress and the president over the scope of executive privilege, and over time, claims of executive privilege have become broader and more sweeping. What happens to the—so you believe that then the the concept of executive privilege has to be completely waived then by the White House? In an impeachment inquiry, yes. Not in any other inquiry, but in an impeachment inquiry, yes. Not in a criminal case or not in any other case. But—, but the executive privilege falls in an impeachment inquiry, and that's the only place it falls. That's what I believe. Okay. That's not the way it worked out in Watergate, and it hasn't worked out since. In, in Watergate, it happens, the Supreme Court, as we've discussed, the Supreme Court decided that there is such a thing as executive privilege, but it can be overridden in the, by the needs of a criminal case. That resulted in them ordering the tapes to be turned over. President Nixon then turned over the tapes, and then the tapes were then sent to us by the special prosecutor. But, if, but that's a different. But I was going to ask you: if, if the impeachment proceedings involves a crime by the president, are you not then asking the president also to waive his fifth or her fifth amendment rights? The impeachment proceeding is not a criminal proceeding. The impeachment proceeding doesn't send anybody to jail. The impeachment proceeding to decide whether somebody should stay in office, or it's fit to stay in office. And in that proceeding, if the president takes the Fifth Amendment, you can use or refuses to testify because then he might be subject to a criminal proceeding, then you can take that into consideration, in effect, in deciding he's not fit to stay in office. It's, it's a whole different thing. And that's the whole, and also, we have big discussions about this, and other people can discuss this as well or better than I. You know, to, to impeach a president, you don't have to prove that he committed a crime. This was a major discussion. It doesn't have to be a misdemeanor, a felony. A high crimes and misdemeanors has a, a, a different meaning on our Constitution. We thought that, that the word crime or misdemeanor normally has. It's, we, it had to be something that only a president can do that undermines our constitutional structure, that, that it's, it's, it's an abuse of power, whether it turns out to be criminal or not. That was a very interesting discussion at the time. Uh, and the misuse of the FBI to investigate your political opponents may or may not be a crime, but that's an impeachable offense. The misuse of the CIA, you know, whether or not it turns out to be a crime, is, 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 is an impeachable offense. When you sent the CIA to, you know, to, to, to act outside its, its proper parameters for your own political interests, that's a crime. That, that's, that's rather an impeachable offense. It may not be a crime. That's an impeachable offense. Those are, the, those are the issues we try to deal with at the time, and that's what we try to articulate at the time. Well, it's articulated in, in uh, the, that document, the grounds for, grounds for impeachment. For impeachment. Right. It also, of course, had been established constitutional law that uh, a president had total control of anything like that himself. Neither of the other branches had any right whatsoever to demand it. Uh, this was first established by uh, Chief Justice John Marshall, a contretemps between Chief Justice John Marshall and President Thomas Jefferson back in about 1802, when Johnson 
uh, when Marshall issued a subpoena, Jefferson refused to reply on the basis of separation of powers. Marshall backed down. It remained. Uh, and there was another uh, major thing in the 1930s, Humphrey's executor, in which the Supreme Court again very explicitly and clearly made clear that uh, each of the three branches is is supreme in its own in its own uh, sphere and cannot it is not subject to demands from the, from the other three for anything like that but uh, and that held entirely until the doctrine established by John, John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson was uh, invoked by Richard Nixon and then of course the Supreme Court re reversed which is a complicated factor though you had you had this uh, lengthy testimony from John Dean mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that was linked to a crime mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. um, and there were these tapes that could uh, refute or mm -hmm. corroborate the testimony mm -hmm. which implicated the president yeah. mm -hmm. that may have made it a little more complicated it made it more complicated, but it did not. It didn't. It had no relation whatsoever to the fundamental constitutional separation of powers among the three branches of government. Neither one, each one, being as the Supreme Court itself had put it, supreme in its own sphere, uh, and, which was inviolable by the others. And that had been the settled constitutional law for two hundred years. Executive privilege was sort of the basis of the fight that would come here at the end for the United States versus Richard Dixon. And what I thought I would do uh, was I found a lecture, uh, 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 an evening with Phil Lockavar. He was the guy on the special prosecutors uh, task force who, along with uh, Leon Jaworski, argued the case. And I thought he, I'd let him, it's about 20 minutes long, talk about uh, arguing the case in front of the Supreme Court. And you get a feel for him as an individual as you listen. An interesting background to all of this. The, uh, the Supreme Court decision, just to complete the timeline, related to a second subpoena for t White House tapes. And fast forward a bit, that subpoena uh, ultimately turned up the tape that proved to be President Nixon's undoing. The uh, Supreme Court decided to hear the case very uh, expeditiously. Uh, Judge Sirica had enforced the subpoena again and decided, uh, directed the president to turn over these tapes. The president again refused and uh, uh, appealed the order to the uh, intermediate appellate court. And we immediately, without waiting for a delay, and by the way, this is uh, a, a procedural device which is relevant to what's happening today when one of the concerns of the uh, both the Intelligence Committee and the Judiciary Committee, is the delay that is occurring as orders to President Nixon, uh, President Trump's staff to testify um, are being uh, deferred by intermediate appeals and stays. So the Supreme Court decided to convene especially to hear uh, the oral argument in the Nixon tapes case. And... Uh, Leon Jaworski, who was not a Supreme Court lawyer by training, he was a trial lawyer and a, and a very good trial lawyer, uh, suggested that I should be the person who argued the case because I was the counsel and I had Supreme Court experience having been in the Solicitor General's office. And 
uh, I was involved in overseeing the development of the various constitutional theories that had to be pursued or uh, combated, specifically executive privilege being claimed by uh, President Nixon, which was essentially the argument that the president's communications with his senior staff, which were recorded for his use, ought not to be disclosed if he chose not to disclose them. And the rationale for that was that in order to assure confidential communications and candid communications, there had to be a, a kind of assurance of confidentiality. It's a bit like the attorney-client privilege or the priest-penitent privilege. And so uh, the president was arguing that this privilege existed and gave him the final say over whether the tapes containing his conversations with his aides should be released. He also argued in another uh, line of argument that uh, is uh, a predictor of President Trump's much more extreme arguments today, and that is that everyone in the executive branch is accountable to the president. He is the chief executive and any prosecutors, including special prosecutors, are exercising the power that is delegated under the Constitution to the chief executive, because Article 2, as President Trump has learned to say, <laughs> I suspect that until uh, this affair came to light, uh, he had never read the Constitution, much less read anything about the powers that he was so eagerly seeking and successfully seeking. But Article 2 says that the executive power is vested in the President of the United States. So Nixon said, if I don't want anything to go forward, including any demand that I produce confidential materials and the demand is coming from a subordinate executive officer, a prosecutor, that's the end of the story. And the courts have to defer to my choice as the chief executive about what a subordinate executive official could do. So those were the theories that were in, uh, in dispute. In, this in the is the so-called unitary executive theory. This is what's become known uh, really in the period since the Nixon tapes case as the unitary executive theory. It's been developed by some constitutional scholars who are um, embodied in the, um, the marrow of an organization called the Federalist Society. And perhaps some of you have read that the Federalist Society is now the exclusive source from which President Trump is nominating judges. So all of the judges that President Trump has been nominating to the lower courts and indeed to the uh, Supreme Court uh, with uh, Judge Kavanaugh, now Justice Kavanaugh, are adherents to this notion that the president is an all-powerful embodiment of all of the powers of government, especially the powers of administering the law, determining how the law is to be interpreted. That theory had not been developed to its extreme, even as of the time of the Nixon tapes case. But it was, this, it was the germ of the idea that was advanced. And as you may know, it was the idea that was actually rejected by the Supreme Court unanimously in the Nixon tapes case. 
But to complete the answer to Matt's question, uh, I started to, to say that uh, Jaworski had wanted me to argue the case, and I said the country really expects the special prosecutor to be arguing the case. So he said, well, I'll compromise. I'll, I'll take the first 45 minutes uh, for the opening, and then you do 45 minutes of rebuttal. Uh, there was also, just to put a little life into this, I, part of our litigation strategy was to present to the Supreme Court the idea that we represented the United States of America as the sovereign, and the caption of the case is the United States versus Richard Nixon, president of the United States. So the, the scenario, the cosmetic presentation that we were developing was it's the president as a witness, just like any other witness, but the United States is prosecuting a criminal case. It needs evidence for this case, and that's why the courts should decide what evidence should be presented. So I said, as part of this, we will print our brief in the same color that the Supreme Court was accustomed to seeing the Solicitor General's brief. He's the person who represents the United States before the Supreme Court typically. It's a buff gray. No one else uses that color. And I said, in addition, the court is expected to see the government's representatives arguing wearing formal dress. Even to this day, the lawyers from the Solicitor General's office, when appearing before the Supreme Court, wearing a morning coat, striped trousers, pearl gray vest. So I said, we've got to wear those... Um, uh, uh, those clothing uh, styles to show the court that we are the United States and Richard Nixon just happens to be a recalcitrant witness. And Leon Jaworski from Texas said, that's going too far. <laughs> he said, just be happy I'm not going to wear cowboy boots. <laughs> and he didn't. So we wore business suits. And that's how I wound up in the court. So as you... Uh, uh, and by the way, if you are as nerdy as I am, I encourage you to actually listen to the oral arguments uh, or to read them because they are fascinating. And uh, I won't put Philip on the spot, but I will say my impression was it was it was not going so great until Philip stood up because J Jaworski, a, a brilliant trial lawyer, but his presentation that day, for whatever reason, seemed a little bit of a mess. And um, uh, the. The, I thought the tide really turned in the oral argument when you took to the lectern. Um, no comment. But. <laughs> in fact, there's a lovely moment uh, where uh, the the chief you, – you, you refer to Marbury v. Madison, right, which we had all learned about in school, the kind of this kind of foundational case that says the Supreme Court has this, this power of judicial review. And uh, the, the chief justice interrupts and says – Yes, but Mr. Jefferson lost that case. And Philip says, that's not actually true, Mr. Chief Justice. And I thought, it's quite remarkable lecturing the Chief Justice <laughs> of the United States on Marbury v. Madison. I figured I had nothing to lose. <laughs> but in any event, the, so you faced a, a dual task that day. You had to, um, you had to convince the court that the, that, the, that the president's executive authority was not absolute, and you had to convince the court that while there may be uh, something like executive privilege or that there is something like executive privilege, that that this material should not be subject to it. 
So how did you do those two things? Well, that was the fine line that we had to draw, which was the fallback. We, we disputed that there was any particular basis in traditional Anglo-American law for something called executive privilege. It had never been recognized in any prior case. So we said, it doesn't exist. There are some recognized privileges, doctor, patient, priest, penitent, attorney, client, but not executive privilege. But we said, if it does exist in some form, it's not absolute. And ultimately, as in Marbury versus Madison, it's up for the courts to make the decision whether executive privilege should be counterbalanced by other factors. And in this case, we argued that the tapes were going to show what was true and what was false about the criminal responsibility, if any, of the defendants whom we had accused of conspiracy, the people who were indicted. John Dean, who was the principal witness in the Senate hearings, said they were part of a conspiracy to obstruct justice, pay bribes to witnesses, including the, the men who were originally identified in the Watergate break-in. And the defendants, uh, the president's lawyer, the counsel, uh, counsel, John Orkman, his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, his attorney general, John Mitchell, denied all of this. And we said, the tapes will show who's right and who's wrong. And in the interests of justice, it's as important that the innocent should go free as that the guilty should be convicted. And therefore, if the tapes show that these men are innocent, the courts need to get that information. And that's ultimately the way it, it turned out. Uh, the, the one exception that we, we conceded and that the court uh, did uh, allow was in the matter of national security or foreign intelligence. The court said because of the uniquely sensitive nature of that information, if the president makes a bona fide assertion that information being discussed in the Oval Office concerns immediate matters of national security, that will be absolutely off limits. But it was up to, the, to Judge Sirica to make sure that the president was not overstating any material that might be covered by that very limited exception to the obligation of the courts to decide what evidence has to be produced. So the idea was, um, if there is this thing called executive privilege, then uh, it can't possibly apply to, it can't be a reason to withhold this material because this material is needed in a criminal trial uh, and might might actually prove exculpatory, right, for the defendants. Um, th in other words, their life and limb is on the line. And, and that was the argument that uh, the court ultimately accepted unanimously. And, and I, I think I should add at this point uh, that up to the run-up uh, to the oral argument and the decision, President Nixon had been keeping open his options. He was asked repeatedly at press conferences, if the Supreme Court rules against you as the lower courts have, will you obey a Supreme Court decision ordering you to turn over the tapes? And the president was dangling the possibility that he might not, and his public rationale was, I am the head of a coordinate branch. They're the courts. They can decide what they think ought to be done. I'm the president, and I've got my responsibility to the presidency. Anybody heard that lately? 
uh, to withhold this evidence just to protect all my successors. Anybody heard that lately? <laughs> uh, and so President Nixon had said, if it's not a definitive ruling, for example, it, with a 5-4, or as it turned out to be, there are only eight justices participating, a 5-3 decision, that would not be definitive. So the closing point that I made in the, uh, in the argument was that we requested that the Supreme Court come out the way we were urging and to do so in a definitive way. And that turned out to be the key ingredient in the behind-the-scenes negotiations, as have now come out from some of the justices' papers, because the trading that was done by Chief Justice uh, Berger in order to get a unanimous decision, something that was definitive and, and uh, unavoidably uh, firm and uh, irrefutable, was that the, the some of the justices who were prepared to reject the existence of any executive privilege, or at least to treat it as a, a relatively low-grade privilege, were willing to agree that uh, with the ultimate result, which was that, yes, there is such a thing as executive privilege, and it's a corollary of the constitutional separation of powers, but it's not absolute, and the courts can override it. So there was a unanimous decision granting something to the presidency. There is a constitutional executive privilege, but it's not absolute, and the courts ultimately decide. And in this case, the interest in finding the truth in a dispositive way overrode this uh, claim of privilege. Were you surprised? Uh, was Jaworski surprised that it was unanimous? I think we were all surprised. When, when we first decided to start the litigation over tapes right after the Butterfield announcement that there was tape in the Oval Office, Cox, who had been the Solicitor General and was a Harvard Law School professor, uh, and I and, and his assistant, who had just finished clerking uh, on the Supreme Court, sat down and did nose counting. If we start this process, what's the chance that we will be able to convince a majority of the Supreme Court that we are right? And Cox was very sensitive uh, about the consequences of starting a battle like this and then losing it, because the whole point of having a special prosecutor appointed was to demonstrate that the president is above the law. He is like any other citizen who has an obligation to provide evidence. And if the courts ruled that the president had the absolute right to countermand a prosecutor's uh, request for evidence or had an absolute privilege to, to decide what evidence could be produced in a criminal case, it would have established exactly the opposite point for from which from the one that uh, the Cox thought our mission was to try to establish. So we did a lot of uh, nose counting. We didn't know how many justices would actually participate, but we got up to probably five, four, or six, three. What made the difference was the Saturday night massacre and the public mood, because by the time the case got to the Supreme Court. The president, who had been elected, as you mentioned, with a 49, an unprecedented, and I think still unique, um, electoral majority, electoral sweep, but for Massachusetts, and the District of Columbia. 
that, that president had become considerably less popular and his conduct became much harder to justify. And I think that influenced justices who were conscious of where they would stand in the march of history, right. on what side of the, of the arc of history did they want to be. And that's why I think when it ultimately came down to it, they were all willing to agree to a unanimous decision, which was crucial to the outcome. I think it's interesting to hear his insights into the case on, on their side. Because, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting hearing anybody who's ever argued in front of the United States Supreme Court. But I did think another segment I found was a question and answer that uh, Mr. Lacavara had with somebody that was asking about the Trump administration. Because uh, this was at Fordham University, so it was a, an evening with him on the 45th anniversary of, of uh the, the the case of the United States versus Richard Nixon, but it, it'll give you some insight about how the insiders in Washington feel about having an outsider come in and their ability through the various institutions of government to control them. Uh, it's uh, I, I think it speaks for itself. So I'm going to let you listen to it. Many people, including me, or appointed, if we want to look at the electoral yeah, college. Appointed by the electoral what college. does the electoral college? Do? Many people, including me, were distraught at that prospect, wondering how bad this could be. And I said to people in, in my family and a few other folks who wanted to know what my thoughts were, uh, I think it will not be as bad as it might be because of several institutions that the president can't really control or at least overwhelm the press, Congress, the courts, and the permanent civil service and foreign service. That there are, in my experience in, in government, uh, despite uh, what uh, the, 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 uh, the burlesque image of faceless bureaucrats, as the, as the president calls them, the people who work in government are, in my view, real dedicated public servants who care about the mission and 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 have the highest integrity and i think we've seen that in the hearings before the uh the uh, senate uh, the uh, the house uh, intelligence committee and these are the people who are working in there day after day despite the attempts at intimidation the pillorying of the mission that they've been assigned by under under the law and i think it's the it's it's the it's the best of America that we've seen that these people, for the most part, are staying at their posts. And I think it's interesting that the the civil servants and many of the lawyers in the government have shown that they've they've enforced the rule of law more than, let's say, certain aspects of Congress. Right. So. In terms of the institutions, we talk about the press. I mean, how would you rate of those institutions, the press, the courts, the Senate, the House? And, and uh, one more thing to put in that mix, in addition to the, and, and then the, the, first of all, whenever anyone refers to the phrase deep state, like, uh, you know, the deep state undermined the, you know, the travel ban or the deep state undermined uh, the family separation policy, I always do sort of a, an internal mental search and replace function of substitute out deep state and insert rule of law. Right. Because it is it is. And, and so so I want to reinforce, I think, what you've said. I think the most successful institution may be that deep state slash rule of law of the of the public servants 
um, uh, otherwise known as the whistleblower, otherwise known as uh, as as Alexander Vindman and the and what we the I think the courage we saw um, over the past two weeks before Thanksgiving of, of all that testimony of, of of otherwise bureaucrats. Well, I think um, some people have said if this is the deep state, I want more of it. Right, exactly, because it does show professionalism and integrity and courage, uh, consistency, of right. the kinds of things you hope for in any institution, but particularly in our government. So, and if you want to read more about the deep state, I have some articles about it from the 19th century. Um, <laughs> you know, you can't make stuff like that up the 19th century. You can make up your own mind whether the red state or the deep state really exists or whether or not uh, it's just bureaucrats who, uh, who are fighting for justice or whether or not there's a little bit of just people protecting their turf. But either way, uh, outsiders like Richard Nixon or Donald Trump, for that matter, uh, usually find themselves on uh, on the tough end of the stick when it comes to that. Um, I did find another piece of uh, of the segment interesting, and that was his assessments of what is an is not an impeachable offense. Now, this one, uh, even though I disagree with him on Richard Nixon, I do agree with him that bad policy or even stupid decisions are not an impeachable offense. I don't think I'd make that clean a distinction. I I have said publicly in op-eds and other places that but for Watergate, Richard Nixon could have been a great president. I actually voted for him twice. Um, But that Watergate but for was a pretty big but for, in my view. And I think that questionable policy decisions about Iraq, for example, or the methods for convincing the American public that we should be going in to invade Iraq, they probably don't constitute the kind of conduct that the framers had in mind uh, when they were uh, framing the, uh, the, the test of bribery, treason bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanor. Uh, indeed, I'm a little concerned, and I've said this as well, that the Ukraine situation is messier uh, as a matter of impeachment grounds than some of the other things that I think are clearer bases for impeaching President Trump, because one can at least try to argue that he was trying to fight corruption in Ukraine. Now, I don't think anybody can seriously say that, but one can say it, uh, and the Republican and the Republicans are saying it, and so they're saying it's just a policy difference about how to go about rooting out corruption in Ukraine or American involvement in corruption in Ukraine. So that the distinction properly is policy debates, even boneheaded policy decisions are not impeachable, but something that rises to a real abuse for personal purposes, which is what they, uh, they had in mind, using public power for private gain, which is why bribery is in there. That's a distinct uh, ground, fundamentally different from the the, uh, the instances that you're describing. Finally, I uh, I thought this was interesting. His assessment of the current Supreme Court, because I actually believe in the unitary executive uh, theory about what a president is and the separation of powers, and that, in my opinion, and how you can you'll have this forever, but. The Supreme Court overstepped their bound. They made a wrong decision in Nixon versus the United States. Uh, I, and it's interesting to hear him assess the different uh, um, Supreme Court justices. And you're going to hear Bernard Nussbaum, one of the 
one of the larger Democratic figures of our time, give you an assessment of what he thinks, and I tend to agree more with his position uh, than than most that I've heard about what executive privilege is and uh, what the right decision of how it should be handled is. So here you go. And I think there's a realistic possibility that the president would prevail before this Supreme Court. Uh, During the hearings on uh, Brett Kavanaugh's nomination, one of the lines of of questioning, which got uh, uh, obliterated by the concern about whether he had physically or sexually abused uh, Ms. Blasey Ford, but it was... Uh, an inquiry into comments that he'd made in a panel discussion that I had chaired a couple of years earlier in which he said that he thought that applying the unitary executive theory of which he is uh, a proponent, United States versus Nixon, the topic of our conversation tonight, was wrongly decided. That is certainly the view of Neil Gorsuch, uh, it is probably the view of uh, at least Clarence Thomas. And you can go on the, down the line. Where John Roberts comes out would be key. But you would not have a, a nine to nothing or eight to nothing decision to, with this Supreme Court uh, as we had uh, 45 years ago. The mistake the president made was, <laughs> was having an independent counsel, a special prosecutor, who then took him to court. And, and, and secured the tapes, in effect. Although it's my view that, as I expressed to you on another occasion, that uh, <laughs> that the Supreme Court in the United States v. Nixon probably made the wrong decision in ordering the tapes to be told over, that the president's executive privileges is absolute except in impeachment proceedings. That's the right way. It probably wouldn't have come out, but the, the way it came out, if what I consider the right way was followed. The fact is the Supreme Court did rule, the president did decide to turn over the tapes, which in retrospect was probably an historic mistake from his point of view, um, and turning over the tapes resulted in the impeachment of the president. If he destroyed the tapes, he probably would not have been impeached. Other people can argue that differently, and maybe I'm wrong on that. I, actually, I hope I'm wrong on that. But who knows? I mean, it's he did turn them over, we did get them, and we did present them to the committee, and we laid it all out, and com- the tapes combined with all the other facts we gathered, or collated. You know, I'm not—I don't even take credit, or have our staff take credit for sort of, you know, uncovering all these facts. There's nothing that I remember we uncovered that wasn't obtained by from somebody else. What Dora understood is, as I indicated earlier, our process was to sort of get, to gather, to collate, as I said before, and to present. With that, I just want to do a little housekeeping here. The next four episodes are going to be the Supreme Court arguments uh, that were made on July the 8th of 1974. You're going to hear uh, Mr. Lacavar, who we've been here listening to in this episode, and Leon Jaworski. You're also going to hear James St. Clair, who was the president's uh, attorney, and you're going to hear from all of the Supreme Court justices and their questions. It is a fascinating uh um, thing to listen to and I kind of figure as a podcast we can divide it up in 45 minute segments and that's something that a lot of people don't get to do because they look at the whole three hours and go oh my god I don't want to listen to sit here and listen to all that but if, those of you who listen to podcasts every day 
dividing it up might make it uh, more digestible for you. And like I said, it's a fascinating uh, thing to do. Take out the merits of the impeachment of, of Richard Nixon just to hear a high-stakes Supreme Court argument uh, for those of us who are laymen is a pretty fascinating thing to get to do. This nation's constitutional form of government is in serious jeopardy. If the president is to say that the Constitution means what he says it does, and that there is no one, not even the Supreme Court, to tell him otherwise. I say the president should decide as a political matter what should be made available, that the court has no right to determine what the executive will offer in evidence. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.